Hello loves, my name is Nelson, one of the pastors at Artisan, and it's good to be with you in this way, at this time, and in this space. One of the marginalized voices that I've been paying attention to for a while is that of a black writer, contemplative activist, and musician, Andre Henry. I'd also say he's a prophetic voice. Uh, his weekly newsletter is called Hard Pills, as words from prophets usually are. And here's what he wrote last week. Personal transformation is part of social transformation. I know from my time on the streets that many people join movements because they've been hurt by mainstream society. But without attention given to inner transformation in the movement, we tend to recreate the kinds of harm we experienced elsewhere. We must never forget that we've been shaped by the toxic society we're trying to change. That means we need to change too. A revolution of society isn't the automatic result of a revolution of the soul. Nevertheless, a revolution of the soul is necessary. And then he signs off as he always does. A new world is possible. It doesn't have to be this way. I love that. Personal transformation is a part of social transformation. And a revolution of the soul is necessary. I reckon we all instinctively get this. That change in society needs to happen at the level of systems and institutions, but the way we get there is through change at the very root of who we are, at the level of individual motivations and postures. True and lasting change happens from the inside out. We get it. Most of us would probably even say we want it. But when it comes to doing the actual work, that's where things get challenging. We feel overwhelmed by the enormity of external injustice. Let's face it, it's incessant. And it's much easier to point fingers and assign blame rather than look inside at our own complicity. We second guess whether we're really actually part of the problem. We're unconvinced that our little steps toward personal change will truly amount to anything in the bigger picture. And even in those moments where we are convinced, we're, we feel unsure about where to begin. Uh, we become impatient with the rate of change. It's always so slow. But the prophets from Isaiah to Jesus to Dr. King to Andre Henry keep calling us to attend to our own hearts, to inward transformation in the movement, to being formed by love rather than by hate. How do we do that? How do we join God in the renewal of our own inner being? How might we participate in the revolution of the soul? I'm becoming convinced that praying the Psalms is a necessary practice for anyone who wants to affect change. And that includes the ones we're not sure what to do with, the Psalms that are hard pills. Psalm 137 is one of those. If you're not familiar with it, fair warning friends, there's some troubling content here. I invite you to pay attention to the feelings that get stirred up in you as I read this psalm. By the rivers of Babylon we sat and wept when we remembered Zion. There on the poplars we hung our harps. For there our captors asked us for songs, our tormentors, Demanded songs of joy, they said, sing us one of the songs of Zion. How can we sing the songs of the Lord while in a foreign land? If I forget you, Jerusalem, may my right hand forget its skill. 
May my tongue cling to the roof of my mouth if I do not remember you, if I do not consider Jerusalem my highest joy. Remember, Lord, what the Edomites did on the day Jerusalem fell. Tear it down, they cried. Tear it down to its foundations. Daughter Babylon, doomed to destruction. Happy is the one who repays you according to what you've done to us. Happy is the one who seizes your infants and dashes them against the rocks. What did you hear? What kinds of feelings get stirred up? If you're watching on the YouTube premiere on Sunday morning, or uh, feel free to comment in the chat or talk with those that you happen to be with. Press pause if you need to take a minute, a minute to do that. What does it mean to pray Psalm 137 with all its lament and rage and revenge? As followers of Jesus, how do we pray this? The one who taught us to love our enemies. Psalm 137 is one that, like many other lament psalms, gives us both permission and language to name the darkness we encounter daily. We need that. It can't only be, bless the Lord my soul, and forget not all his benefits. It offers a corrective to our tendency to cover up, to deny, to pretend all is well. It provides a starting point where we can locate our feelings of sadness and anger and even hatred. All you have to do is read comments on the socials to know we need help in dealing with such feelings in healthy ways. So let's pray and ask for God's help as we engage this psalm together. Pray with me briefly. Lord Jesus, with the disciples, we ask you to teach us to pray. You open our minds and hearts and imaginations to hear your spirit. Would you touch us, refresh us, provoke us, challenge us, and draw us to your heart. In the name of Jesus, amen. Well, as some of you know, uh, the 150 Psalms that we find in scripture are actually divided into five books. If you have your Bible with you, you'll see those divisions. Psalm 137 seems out of place in almost every way. It's in book five, which has mostly upbeat, praise-oriented psalms. It directly follows two psalms that celebrate God's gift of the land, that foreign kings have been overthrown and God has given their land to Israel as inheritance. The psalm immediately preceding, 136, we have this refrain that echoes repeatedly, his love endures forever, reminding Israel of God's faithfulness to his people over and over again. And then, the sharp dissonance of Psalm 137. An imprecatory psalm, the verb to imprecate means to call down curses. So in one breath, we're celebrating God's undying love and in the next we have this, a psalm of deep loss. Israel no longer has the land and a profound sense of God's absence. As you might expect, there's a story behind all this venom and cursing. It's one of the few psalms that names a very specific historic occasion. Places are named in people groups. You can read about the background in 2 Kings 25. It's around 587 BC. So King Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonian army attack Jerusalem and the people of Judah are shipped off to Babylon. The people of God have been exiled, deported and displaced. An entire people uprooted and driven from their homes. What all did they lose? 
They lost the land through which God blessed his people. This was God's gift to them, the actual location of God's blessing. Deep connection with place gave a sense of identity, which left these people asking, if our land is gone, who exactly are we? They lost the king through whom God exercised his rule, which left them asking, if the king's God, who's in charge? How is God actually ruling the world? How can we say he's got the whole world in his hands when this kind of stuff is happening? They lost the temple where God had made himself known, the place where God received their worship and the sacred place where he met with his people, which left them asking, if the temple is gone, where is God's presence? How do we find God now? Similarly, ask ourselves these questions as well. What do you do when you're displaced, when you're uprooted without connection to a place or people, or when your sense of identity, uh, what, what makes you you has been taken away? What do you do when the place you found God is gone? When you find yourself cut off from any sense of divine presence, when you're unable to see or hear or sense God through the ways that used to work? What do you do when you've lost the markers that, let you, that help you navigate life, that, that keep you oriented? When your spouse or a dear friend, a loved one, your health, maybe a job or your business is taken from you? You may know where you are geographically, but you have no idea where you are in relation to the deep questions of life. Who you are, where life is, where God is. What do you do? You weep. You weep. Verse 1 again. By the rivers of Babylon we sat and wept when we remembered Zion. Their grief was about much more than homesickness. They were haunted by memories of Zion, memories that would have included feasts and festivals, time with friends and family, memories of peace, of shalom, of connection, and also tormented memories of devastation. Jerusalem. God's earthly home, the capital of his reign, lying in ruins. When that happens, you weep. The word here is gam, which means weeping loudly. The words actually have a sad sound in Hebrew. Verses 1 to 3 repeat the pronoun nu, meaning we or our, nine times. The word has a mournful sound, so when, when you read it in Hebrew, it sounds like crying woe or oh repeatedly. The poem's very structure and sound brings people into a space of remembering and grieving. I wonder how it would shape a community that right in their prayer book, year after year, they're encouraged to remember and to weep, to sing a song that sounds like weeping. Verse two, there on the poplars we hung our harps. This image of muted, silenced instruments is a powerful one. If you've seen any movies uh, that feature Jewish culture, or maybe even been to a festival yourself or an event, you know these are people who don't hold back with musical expression. They're known for robust, loud, demonstrative singing, but in this moment, all the music has been knocked out of them. What had been used for celebration, for sounding out real joy, these instruments are unable to be used anymore, or they are refusing to use them. There is a grief that silences. There are times when there are no words. The next verses continue. For there our captors asked us for songs. Our tormentors demanded songs of joy. Sing us one of the songs of Zion. 
How can we sing the songs of the Lord while in a foreign land? If I forget you, Jerusalem, may my right hand forget its skill. May my tongue cling to the roof of my mouth if I do not remember you, if I do not consider Jerusalem my highest joy. So observing the people's grief, the captors demanded songs of joy, play us the happy music. I've mentioned this book before, Reading While Black by Esau Macaulay. In it, there's a chapter called, What Shall We Do With This Rage? And it looks at the way Psalm 137 and other parts of scripture reflect a deep kinship between Israel's experience and the shared stories of trauma lived by black folk. Commenting on these verses, Macaulay says, these survivors, still reeling from the events that forever changed their lives, received a demand from their captors. The Babylonians wanted to hear some songs of Jerusalem. They wanted Israel to forget their anger and provide mirth for their captors. Here we encounter the psychological warfare that attaches itself to physical warfare. Not only did their captors take their land, their property, their very bodies, now they demanded their emotions as well. They did not want to see the impact of their crimes on the faces of Israelites. They wanted the Israelites to accept their place joyfully. This reminds us of all the big and small ways black bodies and emotions were managed. That the poem, We Wear the Mask by Paul Lawrence Dunbar captures this in a powerful way. We wear the mask that grins and lies. It hides our cheeks and shades our eyes. This debt we pay to human guile, with torn and bleeding hearts we smile. On this occasion, Israel refused the mask. They were at the edge of their submission. And so even in defeat, there was a part of themselves they would not offer up. Macaulay again, this refusal embedded in the traditions of Israel gives space for black resistance. We can refuse to sing. Psalm 137 reminds us that it is possible and even required for our own survival to say that we will not sing and dance for our masters. Instead, we will remember what was done to us. It is the duty of survivors to remember. Israel's story is, of course, also reflected in the shared experience of indigenous peoples in Canada and elsewhere. Rari Hawkwats, a citizen of the Mohawk Nation at Agwesasni, wrote a paraphrase of Psalm 137. And these middle verses are expressed this way. I will never forget you, Athabasca, as you were meant to be. I will teach my children of the way you were here in our promised land. We will restore you to health. What good am I if I do not remember who you are? If I do not remember who I am, not what I have become, if I do not make what you were a vision for my children. It can be a challenge for many of us to identify with such a localized expression of shared life and religious practice. And our indigenous siblings have much to teach us on that front. But similarly, within the Israelite imagination, place was everything. Where you were from determined who you were as a people. It can help to access this through metaphor. So in scripture, there's actually this symbolic underlying tale of two cities, Jerusalem, versus Babylon. So you've got Jerusalem as God's holy city, Jesus making all things new, where the writer of Revelation says that we have the river of the water of life flowing down from the throne and a city whose gates will never be shut. And you have Babylon, 
the force of anti-God, anti-life, anti-Christ. Babylon is a symbol for complete personal autonomy and for the overall self-serving, seductive capacity in the world or of the world. So in context, being joyful in Babylon would have been like treason to those who belong in God's city. So this psalm is written by someone who's determined not to just settle down and blend in. Remembering is painful, no question, but they are resisting the temptation to just move on. This is surprising. In the face of knowing nothing but God's absence, here the poet is remembering God's presence. He's saying that in that moment, even though he has no idea who he is as a person, or where God is, or if God is, but he will not forget that Babylon is not his home. It's not his home. He's declaring with all the defiance he can muster that Israel's highest joy remains outside their current circumstances. But Psalm 137 is more than a personal memory of an oppressed people. It's also a call for God to remember. It speaks of a reckoning. Verse 7, Remember, Lord, what the Edomites did on the day Jerusalem fell. Tear it down, they cried. Tear it down to its foundations. If it is right for the psalmist to hold on to this reality as the ultimate reality, then surely God must hold on to it and not forget and take action. It's like he's saying, God, surely you're not going to stay in the background. You are not the hero of a dead tradition. Come, work, save, remember. Now, it's important to note that the psalmist is making an appeal to God. It's a petition addressed to God. The, the God assumed in these psalms is a God who's present in, participating in, attentive to the darkness, weakness, displacement of life. The God who is also a divine judge. So what exactly is the divine judge being called on to remember? What did the Edomites do? The Edomites were the Babylonians' allies in Jerusalem's destruction in 587 BC. And this had extra sting because not only were they Israel's neighbors, they were relatives, descendants of Esau, Jacob's brother. So this is deep betrayal, it's family betrayal. You can read more about it in the tiny book of Obadiah, which is directed at the Edomites. So the psalmist is remembering actual words, those are in quotations, tear it down, they cried. If it's been a significant wound or betrayal that you've experienced, you don't forget what was said. Words lodge themselves in your memory. So, that phrase, tear it down, aruba, has this other layer and could be translated, strip her. Strip her. And the phrase, to its foundations, has this double phrase in Hebrew that refer to the buttocks. Stripping her to the butt. Here Jerusalem is depicted as a woman being stripped of her clothing and violently Exposed. This is intentionally malicious and shaming. So no wonder they're crying out loud, these actions can't be forgotten by you, God. This kind of shame and abuse does not just go away. Remember, Lord, bring justice. Then there is a second prosecution, this time against Babylon. Daughter Babylon, doomed to destruction. There's pain in every line of this psalm, and it's here in verse 8 where the pain breaks open and the curses begin to drop. 
There's cutting sarcasm in the last part of verse 8. Happy is the one who repays you according to what you've done to us. So after invoking the name of the enemy capital Babylon, the poet then begins a benediction or a beatitude, happy or blessed. How did this psalm get into our prayer book? Are we still being invited to pray this? Why would we? Imagine 137 being set to music and the lyrics being put in front of us to sing. Probably not going to happen because we don't know how to process this kind of volcanic anger. That's why this psalm is often left out entirely of many hymn books. Or at least why the last two verses are usually omitted from the lectionary. Eugene Peterson calls them psalmectomies. So I picture theologians in a library wearing scrubs coming across these verses and kind of going, what are we supposed to do with this? I don't know, cut it. Seriously though, praying hate. This is raw hate. Are we actually allowed to do this? It seems like the poet has crossed a line here. Some think verse 9 is likely what Babylon has done to Israel. So Israel's simply asking God to avenge on their behalf. Still praying this, singing this, making a beatitude about infanticide. What do you do with this kind of hate? I wonder if part of the problem we have with the text has more to do with us than the text. The, the text essentially asks whether we really care, whether we're really concerned with justice, or are we prepared to simply enjoy Babylon, be nice, not rock the boat, just forget. I wonder sometimes if the opposite of hate or love isn't hate per se, but rather apathy or indifference. Eugene Peterson said, just as hurt is the usual human experience that brings us to our knees praying for help, provoking the realization that we need God, so hate is frequently the human experience that brings us to our feet praying for justice, catalyzing our concern for the terrible violations against life all around us. Hate is often the first sign that we care. I, I like this quote, I, th I think he's right, but what about forgiveness? There are legal overtones going on in the Hebrew here. What's being called for is the principle of lex talionis, or the law of retaliation. Biblically, it's the language of an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, an arm for an arm, a life for a life. It's a principle of proportionate punishment. That's the heart of the request in verse 9. Those who seize your infants should also have theirs dashed. It's what's being implied. And we need to care, take care to notice that retribution of this kind, biblically speaking, is not encouraged in the realm of personal behavior, not even in the Old Testament. So in other words, this psalm is not take, talking about what you and I should do if we're wronged. Rather, it's a matter of legal process for an entire people. The psalmist is actually putting the course of justice in the hands of God. Remember this God and do something about it. But even so, this is not the final resting place of scripture when it comes to rage and revenge. How do we hold this intention with Jesus' command to love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us? So the first thing that presupposes is that you have enemies. Do you? Can you name what or who they are? We've got to start somewhere. And this is the starting point, acknowledging, naming the enemies in our own experience and then bringing them to God for God to sort it out. I believe this psalm is in the Bible to show us that our raw emotions are not out of bounds with God. 
And then, when you're talking about this level of violation, strip her, this kind of humiliation, shame, disgrace, forgiveness is truly a miracle. It is always something God creates. The first step is to bring who we really are to God and then let God create a new heart in us. So how does this psalm teach us to pray? I think the first thing it does is it helps us to name death. Naming death. The psalm teaches us to bring all of our existence unedited, unfettered to God. And at times that means praying hate. This does not mean that prayer legitimizes hate. What prayer does is channel our hate in God's direction where it belongs. Ultimately, God is the only one who can hold it. And the only way, I think, to move through hate and a desire for vengeance is to pray it, to exhale it to God, to willingly place the verdict of your enemy in the hands of God. We've got to start somewhere, even if it means praying. This psalm teaches us to name our disorientation, whatever that happens to be, loneliness, depression, addiction, the pain and memory of sexual abuse, injustice, greed, to name death. Because the gospel, the good news of Jesus, has to do with both death and resurrection. Over in the New Testament, 2 Corinthians 1, verse 8, we read this. Paul's writing, we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers and sisters, about the troubles we experienced in the province of Asia. We were under great pressure, far beyond our ability to endure, so that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt we had received the sentence of death. But this happened, that we might not rely on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He has delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he will deliver us again. On him we have set our hope, that he will continue to deliver us as you help us by your prayers. Then many will give thanks on our behalf for the gracious favor granted us in answer to the prayers of many. In this, in this short text, Paul is showing us something of what it looks like to live the gospel in front of each other. Being honest about naming death felt like we had a death sentence, but also naming hope. So naming resurrection, I think to live inside the story of Jesus is to share in the realities of both death and resurrection. The cross, then the empty tomb. And the sequence is crucial. Death, then resurrection. This is the pattern of following Christ, of discipleship woven into every day. Death, then resurrection. The gospel is not a denier of darkness. It doesn't encourage us to go around the darkness. As Jesus' apprentices, we're not called to pretend evil doesn't exist. We name it, we pray it, we bring it before God where it belongs, and we do so with honesty and boldness because we have hope. As people animated by a resurrection hope, then we can be all the more bold in naming death. Because death has been swallowed up, as the Apostle Paul tells us. Death has lost its sting. Death does not have the final word. Comfort will follow grief. After the long dark night comes, there will be a morning. We can name it all, wherever we find it, because the redemption of Jesus really redeems. He truly is making all things new. Over and over, over again, we name death and we rehearse resurrection. 
Psalm 137 is indeed scandalous, but the grace of God is even more so. Sometimes it's highly offensive to our sensibilities, and yet grace, by definition, offers hope to everyone. It's good news for all people. So this psalm, I believe, invites us to remember our own darkness, all the ways death shows up in our lives, but it also calls us to remember the scandalous grace of Christ that overcame death by death. The grace that leads us into newness of life, to name both in our praying. So let me offer a prayer, and then I want to invite you to the Lord's table, and we'll continue in our worship together. Blessed Trinity, Sacred Three, thank you that you are Father, you are the God of justice who does see and remember and act, and you are the Spirit who brings the presence of God to us when we can't locate it. You are Jesus, whose death has taken all of our death to hell and leads us out in resurrection, in newness of life. Thank you that this is who you are.